Welcome to the Money Better Podcast, brought to you by Union Bank and Trust in Lincoln, Nebraska. Get ready for an authentic conversation about how to do money better by making financial decisions that are right for you. Money doesn't have to be a scary topic anymore. Instead, let's get real about the lessons others have learned, then find ways to use those experiences to get it right. I'm your host, Caitlin Moore. Let's chat. Welcome to another episode of Money Better. I'm Caitlin Moore, your host, and I'm super excited about today's episode. I'm not going to lie, I'm not an expert on today's topic, which has me ready to learn right along with you. And if you're a millennial like I am, this is your episode. We're talking worst case scenarios when it comes to your money, specifically if something were to happen to you. I myself am a mom, and my biggest worry is what would happen to my child should I not be there to take care of him. And I know our experts today can speak to the many scenarios that we all should be considering. All right, I want to introduce our guests today. I have three sitting in front of me. Kara Brostrom. Kara is an attorney at Ball, Loudon, Ebert, and Brostrom Law Offices here in Lincoln, Nebraska. Her practice includes estate and tax planning, trust and estate administration, real estate law, entity formation, and business and succession planning. When not supporting the Huskers, Kara enjoys spending time with her family and friends. Thank you, Kara, for being on Money Better today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, our next guest is Andrew Loudon. Andrew is also an attorney at Ball, Loudon, Ebert, and Brostrom law offices here in Lincoln. He's a trust and estates attorney and specializes in wills, trust, power of attorney, living wills, and much more. So thank you, Andrew, for being with us today. Thank you. I've been told I have a face for radio, so I like podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful, wonderful radio voice. Thank you. Um, And finally, we have Nate Weeding. He's the assistant vice president in our wealth management department here at UBT. He's been with us at the bank for 12 years and in the financial field for 15 In his role, he handles all aspects of estate and trust administration, as well as consults on wealth transfer plans and strategies. And thank you, Nate, for being with us on Money Better today. Glad to be here. Yeah. So one of the impacts that we're seeing due to COVID-19 is more young people are engaging in estate planning and getting a will in place. In 2021, 27% of people ages 18 to 34 had a will compared to just 18% in 2019. So it's a huge jump. And I want to dig into a little bit more of why this is happening. So Kara, I want to start with you. You're in this age category in which we're talking about. So let's kind of talk about worst case scenarios and maybe you can use yourself in some examples. So one of the first questions I want to ask is what happens if something happens to you, a single person without a power of attorney? So there's a lot of issues that unfortunately arise in this situation um, with a single person. So I specialize in an area that's called guardianships and conservatorships. Um, This area, unfortunately, and there's a lot of common sense behind it, but it's a very onerous process. Mm -hmm. And so if you do not have a power of attorney, and this can apply either to finances or for healthcare decisions um, in the event of your incapacity. And of course, you know, as attorneys, we see all different forms of incapacity that can be short term, that can be in between surgeries, that can be long term, Mm -hmm. that can be an early onset of Alzheimer's. But if you do not have a power of attorney in place, we unfortunately go to Nebraska law and the defaults that apply. So what that looks like is not only is there an individual that may have priority to serve as your guardian and conservator that you may not agree with, Mm. but it also will have to go through the court system. Um, What a guardianship and conservatorship looks like from a hearing perspective, um, I'm actually involved in quite a few right now. I help a lot of special needs families with their children once they attain the age of 19, so an adult here in the state of Nebraska. As parents, they have to go through four background checks. There has to be a court hearing, a publication period, service upon the protected person, as well as additional court filings on an annual basis. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot of work. It's a lot of attorney's fees, unfortunately. And of course, we try and make those reasonable for our clients. But in a case of a single person, you can imagine that's either your parent, that's potentially a sibling going to court on your behalf. Um, And you can also imagine emergency situations. Mm -hmm. The last call I want to get on a Friday is, you know, my mother or my father is not taking an oxygen tube. The hospital saying I need a guardianship over her to get this done. What do I do? And so we're, of course, in a hurry. And it's whether the judge is available or not to get a temporary some type of appointment in place. 
the way to address this are just simple power of attorneys. And then you take back control as the individual, not only name the people that you want to be in control, because that may be different than what law states, but also avoid that emergency situation um, and avoid those attorney's fees. So I always tell my clients on the upfront, it's actually saving a lot in attorney's fees, even though that sounds self-serving. Mm-hmm. Uh, to not have your loved ones have to go through that process of appointment of a guardian or conservator. Right. So having that in place, even though it costs a little bit of money on the front end, is going to save a lot, especially in emergency situations. Because I imagine a lot of people are not thinking about this unless it's an emergency. Correct, correct. And that's, of course, when we get the call. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't, you know, typically get calls when things are going well. Right. <laughs> we only receive calls when things are not going yes. well. Um, and I think, you know, one of the big, big misnomers is that even, so if we c- kind of transition from a single person to a married couple, um, you know, in the Lincoln community, I think a lot of times working with local banks, working with a hospital or a physician that you're familiar with, as a spouse, you can get much further than maybe if an accident occurred in Iowa or Kansas mm-hmm. or in another state. However, if there are no power of attorneys in place, your spouse is not technically your guardian or conservator or automatic power of attorney. You do have to have those documents in place. And so it's mm-hmm. you can imagine a surviving spouse. You can imagine a spouse in a situation like that. Um, and, you know, it just depends the situations that we see. We also help a lot of family members with their elderly parents, and they may be out of state. So a lot of unfortunate legal you know, hoops that you have to jump through and that can be easily solved with a power of attorney document. And they're very simple. I mean, I'm talking five pages each. Mm -hmm. Um, The way our office drafts those documents is we split it between finances and then a healthcare power of attorney. And we also work in living will language. And so it's very smart. You know, if you're not necessarily ready to think about your death, it's still important to think about your incapacity. And these documents are a simple solution from our perspective. So if you're married and there's an accident, you're saying that your spouse is not automatically the decision maker here in Nebraska? Technically, no. Okay. Um, now, like I said, in, in the Lincoln community, and you know, it even goes for greater Nebraska as well. I'm from Grand Island. You know, a lot of times you're familiar with the physician that will be you know, at the emergency room or your treating physician. And so a lot of times things work out and they are able to make decisions without a power of attorney or that guardianship appointment. However, technically, mm-hmm. pursuant to law, you're not in that position unless you have a a properly executed power of attorney document that sounds that just makes like my heart hurt it's usually a surprise not be able to make a decision on behalf of a spouse in an emergency situation correct could be very scary the the worst example i can give you from my practice was about 15 years ago it was an older married couple and they were in a second marriage. They were a widow and widower who found somebody and got re- remarried. And they decided to name their adult children as their health care power of attorney. Um, they didn't name each other. Well, then the husband developed Alzheimer's, and his children who live in Colorado came to Omaha and moved him out of the home where he lived with his wife oh. and moved him to be near them in Colorado. And there was nothing his wife could do about it because under Nebraska law, the health care power of attorney controls. So whether there's a lack of one or the spouse isn't named, a lot that catches a lot of people unaware. Oh, wow. And that can't be changed at, at that point for Correct. him because he was not able to make decisions on his own. That's exactly right. Wow. Once someone becomes mentally incapacitated, their decisions are irrevocable, meaning they cannot yeah, be right. changed. Wow, that's tough. Mm-hmm. That is really tough. So as an example of a single person, one of the clients that I am still currently assisting, mm-hmm. you can imagine when people are losing their capacity, if they necessarily don't have close family, so if they right. don't have spouse or if they don't have children or if those individuals or you know whatever it may be, parents aren't living, we see a lot of sibling situations that turn into contentious mm-hmm. uh, matters. Mm-hmm. So for example, if you have a sibling and they're starting to lose capacity, I had one recently where we did a temporary appointment, so that's only good for 90 days upon approval by the court. Mm-hmm. And this individual did not want to stay at the assisted living facility, wanted to you know, go back to a situation that wasn't necessarily safe for this individual. The individual also did not want to be subject to his siblings telling him what to do. Mm-hmm. And so we ended up in a position where 
there's just really no one with authority over him. And so we're just unfortunately waiting until something tragic or something more terrible occurs, except that they know that he's living in an unsafe situation. They know that he's not able to manage his finances. They know that he may not be able to make smart healthcare decisions on his own behalf. However, you can also, you know, run into a situation where the individual that needs to be protected doesn't want to be because unfortunately, you know, capacity is a a large spectrum, right? right? Right. And so if, you know, we see accidents, we see individuals who we know do not have capacity, but sometimes there is that gray area Mm -hmm. and that can create a lot of legal fees for siblings. They're trying to do the, you know, best on behalf of their parent even potentially. However, that person is resisting that appointment. And so it can turn into something that Andrew and I do not handle, but it would be a contested matter. And so it's just additional attorney's fees, additional time, and can really break up a family, I guess mm-hmm. is the best way that I can put it, um, because people are trying to help, um, but that person may not want help. And so you have to wait then for those social safety nets to catch them, whether it be a, mm-hmm. you know adult protective services or something like that. So what is a good example or some good ex- suggestions if you are single but don't necessarily have close family to mm-hmm. help make decisions and you're trying to figure out who to appoint as your, your, I don't even know what the word would be. <laughs> well, on the financial side, one of the best things to consider is an independent third party like Union Bank and Trust Company. Okay. UBT will serve as a financial power of attorney, which is a great solution for fa- folks who don't have family close by or maybe, and we have a lot of these, people who don't have anyone in their family who they trust with their mm-hmm. finances. Maybe your brother or sister or parent is the right person to make medical decisions for you, but they can't balance their own checkbook. Sure. And you're worried, or maybe, and we have a lot of clients who, you know, they love their family, but they think they're a little shady, or they might, mm-hmm. if they had access to their money, um, or just convenience if they're not close by. So naming UBT as your financial power of attorney or trustee and personal representative is a great solution. Now the bank is not going to make healthcare decisions for people. (laughs) And so we do have a lot of clients who will say things like, you know, I love my mom, but she just couldn't make the decision or I I won't, I don't want to name a family member. One suggestion we have is asking your family doctor. About half of family doctors will agree, the other half won't. But that is a nice solution for some people that just don't know who to name. Sometimes the family doctor will agree. Of course, you have to ask him or her for their permission. Mm -hmm. But then if the doctor says no, uh, a trusted friend, uh, maybe a friend from church or in the community Mm -hmm. who shares your same moral values would, Mm -hmm. would be a good idea. We also have special powers of attorney for devout Roman Catholics. We have found, especially in the Lincoln Mm -hmm. Diocese, that Catholics uh, are uncomfortable with some of the language in living wills. And so working with Monsignor uh, Barr about 10 years ago, we developed some language that is very comforting Mm -hmm. to Roman Catholic clients that says that end-of-life decisions need to be made in conformance with the teachings of the church and, if possible, in consultation with a Roman Catholic priest. Interesting. I always tell people when I'm meeting with them, you know, to be named as an agent in this case Mm -hmm. in a power of attorney document, number one is an honor Mm -hmm. because someone is choosing you to step into their shoes for either financial decisions or healthcare decisions, but it's also a burden. And so we work with clients to think through not only who are the individuals that can handle these type of decisions. Mm -hmm. Like Andrew said, you don't want to name someone who can't balance their checkbook as your financial power of attorney. And my joke always is, but it is my reality. My healthcare power of attorney, I have named my husband and then my dad and then my mother. I have a very small family. I named my my mother last because I know she would keep me on machines for 40 years (laughs) and never let go. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also wanted to name her just as an ultimate backup because I do not have siblings. Mm -hmm. And so that's a huge benefit of power of attorneys is that you can kind of go down not only that decision tree to make sure that you're appointing the proper people, but also to appoint people or a corporate trust company in an order of priority. Because as you can imagine, you know, if my husband has passed and my dad is in the nursing home, mm-hmm. you know, then we will look to my mother. And mm-hmm. so you want to make sure that you do have almost a decision tree of individuals that you can work down because not only do we not know when you're going to be incapacitated, we also don't know where the people who you named in your document, where they are in their lives. Right. They may be busy with minor children. They may be, you know, just taking a new job in Europe. I mean, you just have no idea mm-hmm. or they may have passed before you 
And understandably, the last person you want to see is an attorney, and so you didn't update those documents properly. That was going to be my next question, though. Can these be updated, and how often? Absolutely. So most of our clients' documents are revocable or amendable, changeable at any time. You know, I often joke, it must have been a lot harder to do our job before word processing because <laughs> everything's on the computer and easily changed and doesn't take us very long, which means we can't charge people very much. You know, ironically, the main reason people do not get powers of attorney or estate planning documents in place is they think it's going to, going to be expensive. Yes. But as Kara was just explaining very well, it's way more expensive mm -hmm. if you don't have the documents in place. We were recently at a seminar for estate planning lawyers and there was a joke that maybe we should stop doing estate planning because we make a lot more money when things aren't done correctly. That's true, but we're not gonna stop doing estate planning because <laughs> it's the right thing to do. And, and it is not expensive. If you just need powers of attorney, I mean, in our office, it, it probably is not gonna be more than a couple hundred dollars mm -hmm. to get that done. We often encourage parents and grandparents to give that as a Christmas gift. Uh, for their children or grandchildren who are uh -huh. young adults just because it's so important and in a lot of ways is more important than the will although estate planning with the will and trust is also very important yeah. but especially for young adults in an emergency situation this power of attorney could be the most critical document yeah well you've said it you said will so let's transition into that kind of scenario with um, folks that are married with children or maybe single with children what's kind of, what happens if something happens to the parents um, with children if there's nothing in place. So I always like to use myself as an example. Um, we welcomed our first child at the end of last year. And so I advise on this, of course, all day long to clients. And then it's quite bizarre when, as an attorney, I actually think about my personal situation. <laughs> yes. But my husband and I did execute new estate plan documents. So what's interesting, once again, is if I always kind of deem it in this way, if you don't take back control, and either establish a will and or a will and trust for the benefit of your estate plan, then statutes are going to control. And so we look to Nebraska law and it's very interesting and typically not how people want assets to go when they pass. So first I'll go back to if you're a single, or I guess if you're married with no children. Okay. That's a unique situation and I was just in that situation a couple months ago. So in that situation with both of my parents surviving, my husband would receive the first $100,000 and then would share in my estate one half to my parents, one half to my husband. Mm. So my parents like my husband more than they like me. <laughs> so I think it would work out okay, but that's typically not what you want. So you right. can imagine if you own a home. So at that time I had had owned my house by myself. My husband would, would, would receive 100000 and then share an ownership with my parents of mm. our house. And so that could be very interesting. Yes. Now with a child, what's also interesting is it can not only create issues for the division of property, but also because a minor could potentially receive money. Right. So right now, my child, she's actually four months today, which is absolutely mm. unbelievable. <laughs> um, but should I die without a will, or something in place, my husband, again, would receive the first $100,000 and then would share in the balance of my estate with my child. So a half to my husband, wow. a half to my four-month-old. There, again, becomes an issue of a conservatorship. So I actually just had this an unfortunate situation, uh, very similar to this, where a child received assets. In the state of Nebraska, a child is not entitled to receive more than $25,000 per year. So that gets a little bit technical, mm -hmm. but what I'm trying to say is if a minor, if you do not have a will in place and a minor receives property, like in my situation, my husband would have to go to court and be appointed as conservator over those assets that my child received. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of drawbacks there. Once again, quite the process for my husband to get appointed, even though he's the natural guardian or natural mm -hmm. parent of my child. Okay. Also, annual filing reports, and recently, thankfully, some courts have been willing to approve an investment scheme for those funds, but the default in the state of Nebraska, and some counties still follow this, and some county judges still follow this, is that that money is put in CDs. And so you can imagine with the interest rates currently yeah. on CDs, that's not the best option for that right. family or that right. child, right? This money is going to stay in those CDs until that child is 19, also the drawback at 19 guess what they get everything 
So I know at 19, I probably wouldn't have spent money responsibly. Um, And so there's a great way to protect for that, and that's by establishing an estate plan. I hope a lot of young couples, especially after they welcome a a little one, and typically what we see is what I call an I love you will. And so everything to spouse should Mm -hmm. one of you pass. And then upon the second death, we create what's called a testamentary trust. So it only comes into power on that second death. And it's really nice language. So for example, for my child, just Mm -hmm. to share about my estate plan, if I were to die and my husband were to die, let's say within this week, Mm -hmm. it would be held in trust for my child's benefit. She could receive distributions for her health, education, maintenance, and support. So that can go anywhere from clothing to, you know, the trustee helping them purchase a Honda, maybe not the new Tesla truck, (laughs) keeping it within reason, right? Mm -hmm. Tuition, apartment, support, um, prom dress, activities, whatever it may be. And then I set the ages at which she actually gets a check and then can put it in her bank account and do with whatever she wants with it. Mm -hmm. And so we see a lot of people say, you know, age 25, I feel comfortable. Or in my situation, my child will receive one third of the remaining amount at 25, one half of the remaining amount at 30, and then whatever is left at 35. And so, you know, I always tell my clients, the world is your oyster. And so we can create whatever Mm -hmm. we want. Uh, But that's typically what we see. And it's a really nice tool with Mm -hmm. an estate plan to be able to build in those protections and make sure that those assets have the opportunity to grow and are invested in, you know, maybe more aggressive scheme, obviously still needs to be prudent investment, mm-hmm. um, but something that works a little bit more to the advantage of that child. And also, so that child doesn't get a fat check <laughs> yes. at 19, which also can result in some unfortunate right. circumstances. Right. Wow. That's a lot. seems like it would save a lot of time and energy to just do the estate planning. Exactly, exactly. And the other, and, and every state is different on their rules about correct. spouses if one passes and the other has, takes essentially custody of the child, sole custody of the child. There's different rules for each state, too. Correct. Yep, I always You're tell it's in terms of Nebraska. Correct, okay. correct. So, strictly in terms of Nebraska, I always tell clients I have good job security because, of course, every state is different. Mm-hmm. But those default rules are quite uniform across most okay. of the states. So, okay. that's typically what you're going to find. Um, I would say in a majority of the states, if not close to all, I think California is very unique because they have some, some states have different property and how they handle it with spouses, but mm-hmm. with uniform laws, that's typically what you are going to see. Um, and before I forget the other piece that's important in naming in a will with minor children is to nominate the guardian or mm-hmm. where that child goes should both of you pass. Gotcha. And that also is an interesting conversation that we typically have with clients But that's another way, you know, maybe you don't want to name your parents. Maybe you don't want it to go to both of your siblings. Maybe you have priority over the sibling that lives here in Lincoln Mm -hmm. instead of the one that lives in California or whatever the scenario may be. But that's a wonderful way to nominate Mm -hmm. where you would want your child and who would be in in charge of the child for healthcare decisions, where they live, where they go to school, et cetera. What's default if both spouses pass and there's a child? Well, then Nebraska law controls just like the powers of attorney. So if both mom and dad have died, all four grandparents would have equal right to be the guardian, which I know for some of our clients makes them shiver. (coughs) My mother-in-law is going to be Uh the guardian. Uh, You know, when we're talking about guardians, we like to use our own examples. And I always pick on my own family. So I say, you know, if I was going to name my mom and dad as guardians, I don't really mean mom and dad. I mean just my mom. And I love my dad, <laughs> but little kids make him nervous. Mm-hmm. And so and we, I grew up in a very 1950s household, and my mother uh, kind of r- raised the family. And there's no way my dad alone could handle being the guardian. So my, it would be just my mom because I'd be worried about my mom dying before me and my dad being the only guardian. It wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. So in that instance, I just named my mom. So you got to have to think about what if. What if somebody dies in the wrong order? You know, also with my sister. I really like her husband. He's a great guy. He's an attorney here in town, a friend of mine. But I don't want to name my sister and her husband because what if? What if my sister dies before me and now it's my former brother-in-law and his new wife mm-hmm. who are my kid's guardians? So mm-hmm. you kind of have to take it to the, to the second level. And then with the trust that Kara described that holds the money, our best advice is that that guardian who you choose, a family member or friend, to be the legal parent, 
not be the trustee of the money because of a lot of reasons. Number one, oversight. If you have the same person as the guardian of your child and the trustee of your child's money, you know, the guardian could use the money even unwittingly for themselves and not for your child. Also, it's a lot of work and it's a big job to invest the money. And so we always recommend considering an independent third party like Union Bank and Trust Company. UBT can be the trustee of the child's trust while your family member is the guardian. It works like a charm. Mm -hmm. The trust officers at UBT get to know the, uh, the guardian mm -hmm. while your child is a minor, come up with that monthly budget that Kara described for everything from prom dresses, mm -hmm. I love that, mm -hmm. uh, to clothing and, or housing. And then once the child becomes an adult, as Kara said, we don't wanna give them their money then, then the trust officers working with the child directly. Um, my kids, I'm living vicariously through Kara uh, and her <laughs> daughter Mila. I just love hearing all about her. But my kids are 22 and 20 um, and, and in college. And so I know that Union Bank, if they're working with a college student, would not just give the college student sure. money for college and say, have a great semester, because I think we all know what would happen. <laughs> they go directly to the registrar's office at UNL sure. and say, is that person signed up for class? And so they work with them and provide financial education. Mm -hmm. And then hopefully when they reach those ages of economic maturity, we hope, mm -hmm. at 25, 30, or 35, then having worked with the professionals at UBT, the child's going to be more prepared to uh, invest wisely and, and not be a spendthrift. And all the while, UBT is likely investing this money to grow it. Correct. One of the things that they talked about earlier, uh, you know, having a guardian in charge of the needs of the, the child, the minor, and having Union Bank kind of in charge of the trust as trustee, it allows the guardian to worry about what the child needs, um, but they can always ask the question, is this something the trust can pay for? That's a question we get about every day. Um, Kara talked about the document kind of spelling out what, what the trustee can pay for, um, but it's up to the trustee to interpret those words and, and apply that to the child's situation. Uh, you know, our duty as trustee is to, uh, provide for them at the current, and also maintain that, that trust principle for their future. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, we get to interpret these purposely vague words. Uh, <laughs> You're and, welcome. And, <laughs> and uh, decide how that applies. And as Andrew said, uh, we don't put the money in anyone's pocket. You know, we like to see, here's a bill, we'll pay that directly. Um, do they need a car? How can we, uh, you know, how can we best protect them? What makes sense? Do they have insurance? We're kind of checking up on that kind of thing as well. Um, and, and we're governed by what's called the prudent investor rule. Um, we have to invest those funds as a prudent person would. Uh, so um, we want to make sure that it's, it's producing income um, and it's growing, but at the same time, we're protecting it for the future. So we're not investing in you know, crazy schemes and, and things like that. So. Uh, I don't know where I'm going with that. <laughs> no, it was perfect. Yeah, it was maybe. perfect. Yeah. Um, oh, no, I got to gather my thoughts here. Uh, oh, I was going to. So basically, you're a parent to this money at UBT. Par UBT is parenting the dollars to make yeah, it, decisions on the child's back. And there's a word for that, which is fiduciary. We're yes. the fiduciary of those funds. Uh, so we, we have a duty to the current and future beneficiaries of those funds. Good deal. Uh, yeah, so Andrew, I, I wanted to run back to the powers of attorney because one thing we run into sometimes are, are the different degrees in which people come into that power. Um, and I wanted to see if you'd speak on that a little bit. Absolutely. We always recommend durable powers of attorney. There really are two different kinds, durable and springing. And here's the difference. A durable power of attorney is in effect when you sign it. So you still have mental capacity. You haven't been deemed mentally incapacitated by your treating physician. But once you sign it, the person that you've named for your finances, being probably your spouse or union bank, they have the power at that time to write checks for you, file your income taxes for you, sell your real estate. 
Now that's really dangerous if you name somebody who's dishonest. And so when we're talking to people about durable powers of attorney, we say only name somebody you trust implicitly with your finances, which is why so many of our clients name Union Bank instead of a family member because they do not trust somebody implicitly with their, they may love them, but they don't trust them with their money. Now a springing power of attorney is not good. And the reason is it says this is not in effect until I'm deemed mentally incapacitated. Well, I ask, what's the point? You know, the point of a power of attorney is convenience, as Kara was talking about earlier, and allow somebody to help you. Well, if your power of attorney is springing, that means that before the person can help you, they have to go to the doctor, they have to get a treating physician who has treated you, not just any old doctor, to put that opinion in writing that's stressful, time-consuming, and maybe in an emergency situation, there's not enough time. And so we never recommend the springing powers of attorney. Have we had clients insist on them? Yes, uh, we will do them if a client insists, but we strongly prefer durable powers of attorney that are in effect and survive your incapacity is the term, meaning it doesn't matter in effect that you become incapacitated, it was in effect before you had dementia or Alzheimer's or, an, or stroke or an emergency situation. These powers of attorney are also very important when minor children are involved. So a great tool that I recommend and I myself have for my minor child is something called a delegation of parental authority. So in effect, as a parent, you're able to almost sign a power of attorney on behalf of your minor child. So for the example, if you and your spouse are going out of town and you're leaving the little ones with grandparents, you can say, these individuals are going to be in control of my children for this time frame and the document is good for six months or you can set a date time frame and then that that document is able to be used for things such as forms for preschool or school or medical emergencies there's also a hipaa release of health and information in the document itself and so they're absolutely wonderful tools and remember nebraska's unique state our age of majority is 19 not 18 and so it can span that entire time frame so you can imagine things from you know children in preschool to potentially an 18 year old that's at the university of nebraska lincoln that technically is still a minor and so they're great tools to be able to have as a parent. And I've even seen that be used when grandma's in Lincoln uh, and, and the ch grandchild is at the university to be able to help out when, when the family might live out of yeah. state. Hmm. Exactly, exactly. And I was going to say one thing on the incapacity, especially with the springing power of attorney documents. The last thing that I want as an attorney is a bank to have a document saying you're incapacitated. Because the thing that we see and kind of what I alluded to earlier is capacity can be such a gray area. So imagine if you're incapacitated, they need to, for whatever reason, deal with your investments because the stock market's going to take a turn and then you become capacitated again or have capacity again. That can be a very interesting situation. How do you get that letter from the doctor back? How do you change that? And, uh, you know, a lot of times, unfortunately, you're in communication with people that are not attorneys. And once it gets to that attorney level, it can take a long time. And so it's that's why we recommend durable power of attorneys and find that those are not only the easiest, but as Andrew stated, the most convenient. And it's really nice. You know, for example, if I'm in the process of selling a house, but I'm out of town when closing happens. My husband can sign on my behalf, even though I'm totally with it. It also works if maybe something happened and I'm in between surgeries and he needs to make a financial decision on my behalf. So they're great tools to have, and it's important to visit your power of attorney documents for that reason, um, just because that, that is more of a nuanced situation that sometimes it's not described in the estate plan process. Yeah, and, and in practice, you know, I've seen that power of attorney, the durable power of attorney, really be helpful. Uh, whether somebody wants us to step in to help with tax preparation, um, we need to go to the DMV. You know, so many things that uh, they may decide, hey, I want you to help with this, and, and we already can. We can just step in and help whenever they would like it. So, interesting. This is so interesting to me. <laughs> so interesting. We have cool jobs. Yeah, <laughs> it's a lot to remember. Um, well, no one, no one who's thinking about getting married likes to think about worst case scenarios, but I do want to bring up the idea of divorce and some considerations with all of this when a divorce happens. Can either of you speak to that? So the first thing to think about is before you get married, whether or not you want to sign a prenuptial agreement. A prenuptial agreement says that what you bring into the marriage is yours in the case of a divorce. 
both the principal amount and the appreciation or growth. Mm -hmm. Now, most people who are young and getting married for the first time don't even think about signing a prenuptial agreement. However, does your family own a business? Does your family own a farm? These are assets that if you inherit them or they are gifted to you during your lifetime, you could expose them to a divorce if not held correctly. Mm -hmm. And that can be easily overcome by signing a prenuptial agreement prior to the marriage. Now, there are two reasons to have a prenup. We call them the two Ds, divorce and death. Mm -hmm. So the re two reasons to have a prenuptial agreement are one, to keep your assets separate so that in the case of a divorce, they are not subject to the divorce. And a lot of people think about that, but something that some people may not know is that spouses have a right to an inheritance. Kara talked about it earlier in her example of the intestacy, which is the fancy word for what happens if you die without a will. Mm -hmm. But if you get married, and let's say you have a will that says you want the farm that you inherited to go to your children and not to your spouse, and then you die before your spouse, your spouse can, if he or she so elects, to take the first 100000 plus one-half, the amount Kara was talking about, of the joint estate. And if that farm represents 80 or 90% of your joint assets, the needle will be moved by the court. There's nothing that the family can do about it. In other words, your will is ineffective or doesn't matter because it's an absolute right of a spouse to take the first 100000 plus one-half. It's called the elective share. It's not well known. As a student of history, I can tell you it came about during women's suffrage. You see, 100 years ago, only men owned property, and they only left property to men. And part of what uh, the women's suffrage movement was about, in addition to the right to vote, was the right to own property and to inherit property. Mm -hmm. So Nebraska, like most states, has very favorable laws to spouses. But this plays itself out in some interesting ways, especially in second marriages. So imagine, if you will, a second marriage where both spouses have children from a previous relationship and you want to keep those assets separate and if you do not do a prenuptial agreement that waives the right to the elective share your spouse may get half of your assets even though you didn't want her to have half of your assets so careful consideration before you get married uh, should be uh, considered so the prenup can help with divorce and death a postnuptial agreement which is an agreement that you do after you get married mm -hmm. can cannot help with the divorce side. Unfortunately, our Supreme Court said that a few years ago, but it can help. You can still waive for the elective share. So it can, in our world that we deal with a lot, it can waive the right to inherit. This is especially important for families who have family businesses that they okay. want to keep in their family. Prenup is like a bad word when it comes to marriage. <laughs> so it's interesting so. to hear yeah. that. It's such a misconception yeah. with, with young folks too. You hear prenup and, you know, possibly signing a prenup and red flags go up mm -hmm. and but it sounds like especially the suggestion if you have family business or, or land or something yes. like that it's a great idea to just keep that in the family if that's the Absolutely. if that's the goal so it's not really a bad thing nope. to consider a prenup or a postnup I mean, to. to be honest, and of course, we always get the call, you know, two weeks before oh, the wedding. Mm -hmm. And so I've unfortunately been involved in too many scenarios where maybe that wedding was then delayed. But yeah. it also forces a lot of honest conversations. And Kara so has <laughs> broke up several marriages <laughs> <laughs> before they even started. Not on purpose. <laughs> but it does uh, create a lot of interesting conversations for couples. And so mm -hmm. I, I highly recommend it for that reason. But also, I mean, it's quite frankly just smart. And I see a lot of young couples utilize them, not necessarily for the concern of divorce, but it's a great way of organizing how you hold your assets, depending mm -hmm. upon how that prenuptial agreement is written yeah. um, or drafted and kind of what you agree on. So, you know, are you going to everything that's gained during your marriage is that are you okay with that being subject to divorce or do you want to keep things separate mm. right and then i mean that just depends upon the the couple and, and how they want to handle things um so it's always one of those things if it's something you're interested in please you know provide a lot of time prior to the wedding <laughs> just because it it is is it is an undertaking yeah. technically what we like to see is are both parties represented by different attorneys um they can't be represented by the same attorney but a lot of times people don't have an, another attorney review the document and so you can imagine sometimes it takes quite some time mm -hmm. but they are important documents and to be honest it's it's a great time to have honest conversation regarding your finances and sometimes yes. we discover some debt so yeah. <laughs> and, and and i was just going to say exactly what you touched on there 
Um, this is one of an example, one example of a bunch of things you've talked about where open communication, honest communication in the beginning can really help things flow a lot smoother. You know, another thing I thought of when you were talking earlier was the decision of who takes the kids. Uh, you know, I remember my wife and I sitting down to, to have our, our first uh, documents drafted and they said, okay, who's going to take the kids? And we each set our own family and <laughs> looked at each other and, you know, they said, do we need to give you guys the room? And I no. no. Uh, and, and another example I've seen before is um, having honest communication when you're talking about the uh, healthcare power of attorney, um, making sure that anybody you name in that document is willing and able to do that. We've seen it where we produce a document to somebody and they say, I have no idea I was in here and mm -hmm. I don't want that responsibility. Um, but, but, I mean, that goes here too. If, if you can talk about that early and often uh, and not have it be a two week before the wedding surprise, it, it can really make things a lot smoother. Yeah, not a lot of fun conversations. I don't think when people leave our office because you're either talking about death, divorce, or incapacity. Right. But yeah. that's what we specialize in, unfortunately. So, so in my field, in the, the finance world, I think we're there's a huge push to normalize money conversation, and mm -hmm. this is part of it. But for a lot of people, that is not a fun conversation. It's Especially when you're dating, maybe with the intent of marriage, mm -hmm. how do you bring that up, especially if the partner has more assets than you. How do you talk about that? I mean, that could be a whole nother episode, I think. Is how blame to have the these lawyer. Blame Always the, blame the lawyer. I'm happy to be the bad guy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, that's a really great point with that because nobody wants to go there when they're planning a planning a wedding. But give ample time. Exactly. Not a two-week notice to your attorney. Please. No. Okay. Good to know. <laughs> so we brought up the family business as being a consideration, um, but there's also opportunity in, say, a benefits package with startup companies. So your own benefits package how does that apply in estate planning? So this is an important piece and something that we're starting to see more and more often, thankfully, because of the startup community here in the in the Lincoln community. I mean, as you see in the news, it's often featured, whether it be Huddle, Spreetail, uh, Company Cam, whatever it may be. And I am the beneficiary and benefactor of a lot of information there. My husband is uh, deeply involved in the startup community, and so I am thankful to have all the uh, know-how on what's going on in the Lincoln community as it relates to startups. On the estate planning side, it becomes an important consideration for us because a lot of those companies are offering very diverse benefit packages. That can either look as a you know, stock appreciation right agreement or a unit appreciation right agreement, uh, or they're looking at some type of golden handcuff agreement or some type of an additional benefit to keep you as an employee that can play into your estate. And so there are often provisions and those types of agreements that govern what happens to those funds or those rights, however they're vested or however that agreement is drafted, what happens when you pass away? Is that transferable to a spouse? Is that transferable to a trust for your spouse? Um, is it paid out at that time? How is it valued at that time? You can imagine all of those are very unique agreements. Um, a lot of them have income tax consequences as well, so it's a great time to make sure that you're on the same page and are understanding the terms and provisions that have been presented to you obviously a wonderful benefit, right? Uh, but something that can impact your estate plan. It's also important just to review those terms of those contracts. Not that there's a lot of negotiation occurring at those at, at that time. Mm -hmm. However, I always just double check with my clients and just to make sure that it actually works with the estate plan that they have in place. Um, you know, whether that be a will, whether that be a trust, or whether that be something a little bit more complicated. Also where we see it play out, and I think is a great subject matter, is it may not be a startup, it may be a family farm, and there's a lot of estate planning done within those entity documents. And so Andrew and I see a lot of times where, you know, there are transfer restrictions. So for example, Maybe you inherited an operating agreement from family members. Um, so that's the agreement similar to bylaws for a corporation. That's the agreement that applies to a limited liability company. In that document, maybe it says you cannot transfer to spouse, but your will says everything to my spouse. That's going to be an impermissible transfer, and so that creates all types of issue issues on the estate administration side. It's also important to think about if you are in any type of entity or even just owning a business, do you want to go into business with your business partner's spouse? Maybe not, mm -hmm. right? 
Um, and so those are important provisions and important considerations because there's a lot of estate planning done at that entity level. And so as attorneys in reviewing your estate plan, we want to make sure we get our arms around all of your assets. And that can include the benefit package that you're receiving from a startup, or that can include the operating agreement or bylaws that have governed, you know, the family farm since 1973 or whatever it may be. And it's a good time to review those. Number one, to make sure that your estate plan is working for you. But number two, Two, that there aren't any unintended consequences within the terms and provisions of those agreements. And it's also important for you to know entity types of ownership and that kind of thing to, to make sure that whatever plan they want to happen uh, is, is a permissible holder of those entity types. There can be a lot of consequences when you're dealing with any type of business interest that goes through an estate. And, you know, the thing that I'm always concerned about is just to make sure that you're placing the estate in the best situation possible, whether it's you know a, a permissible stockholder or not, or it's those buyout provisions. And so if you're a business owner and you're avoiding those conversations of what happens if I become incapacitated, what happens if I pass away, you've got to think about your spouse and you've got to think about your children and think about, you know, do you want the business to go to your spouse or do you want to pay out negotiated? And you can actually incorporate those terms into those agreements themselves. Um, and I find it to be, those are the best scenarios. Andrew and I are involved in a handful of estates right now where one was in the process of negotiations of a business and passed away three to four days after that negotiation took place. So the documents are sitting there, but they're not executed. Mm -hmm. um, and we're also in situations where people just continue to kick the can down the road. And so you either then you do not secure as large of a, of a payment mm -hmm. potentially, depending upon the circumstances, for the benefit of the surviving family members. So important conversations to have, whether it's just a quick review of that unit appreciation right agreement or whether it's revisiting those bylaws or operating agreements or buy-sell agreements and making sure that they're up to date and that it's fair and reasonable terms that you agree to today, depending upon what business looks like. All right, so I have one more key point I wanna go over and that's beneficiaries and what people need to consider with that. Yes. So when we meet with a client, the first thing that I demand from you is a full layout of every single asset that you hold. Um, and so I want to get a good idea of how those are owned, not only if they're joint tenants. So if you have your spouse on on the account, but more importantly, if you have beneficiary designations on that account. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine this, of course, changes throughout your lifetime, right? So when I establish an account, I'm not married. I may name my parents as the beneficiaries of that account. What's interesting is those beneficiary designations, that contract with that financial institution is more powerful than anything that Andrew and I can write. Hmm. And so that's going to govern where that asset goes. So you can imagine, for example, if I have an account at Union Bank and Trust and it names my parents as the beneficiaries, but my will says everything to my spouse, my parents get that account, hmm. not my spouse. And so it's a really important time when you're looking at your estate plan to review those beneficiary designations and to make sure that they align with your estate plan. Another goal for a lot of our clients is to avoid probate. And that also could be a whole nother podcast mm -hmm. and is something that as you know, young adults, you may unfortunately experience in serving as executor or personal representative for your parents' estate. Like I said, number one, it's an honor, but number two, it's quite the burden. So another point of, for beneficiary designations that we see clients come in for is if they have a trust-based estate plan one of the major goals of having that type of an estate plan is to avoid probate. And that can be a whole nother podcast because probate is, is a totally different subject matter, but is something that Andrew and I practice in often. But if you want to avoid probate, you have to make sure that a trust is properly funded. And so to revisit those beneficiary designations to make sure that it's actually going to the trust or to make sure that your assets are actually working with your estate plan is very important. The other thing, and I don't want to say it too, too much um, because I feel like I keep touching on minor children, but... One of the mistakes or errors that we do see are people name their minor children as beneficiaries on an account. Again, a minor can only receive $25,000. I just had an example of a life insurance benefit to a four-month-old that was over $100,000, and so I will be in court in Douglas County in the next couple of months to handle that matter. 
Um, and so it's really important to remember that all of those beneficiary designations are more powerful than anything that an attorney can draft. And so you have to make sure whether it's to make sure it matches up with your estate or to make sure that you're avoiding unintended consequences by naming a minor, that you're revisiting those mm -hmm. as part of your estate plan. Mm -hmm. um, so it actually works, the documents work for you, or you're not creating, quite frankly, a mess when you do pass away. My mind is blown. I'm just thinking of my own child right yeah. now in a divorce situation and how does this work? And so you guys will probably be getting a call. <laughs> <laughs> and you talked about stages in life and, and yes. generally that's when people update things. Right. Yes. Um, and we often see because things haven't been revisited, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the, the trust goes to three kids, but the investment account they updated when they had their first child and mm -hmm. it only has first child on there. Uh, and so that won't follow that estate plan to the three kids. That first child is the winner. The other fun example that we see almost on a weekly basis is when one of the children, so it may be you that's helping mom or dad or when you're in mm -hmm. that position, uh, goes into a bank with a power of attorney document and instead of being an agent on that account they become the joint owner mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when that occurs then when mom or dad pass away you are technically the owner and so sometimes you know if you have two other siblings right that technically is yours and then it's in your hands whether you decide to divide that as amongst your siblings or whether you hold on to it and it is rightfully yours so there's a lot of estate planning that goes on outside of our office and in those financial institutions and so it's really important whether you're looking at your estate plan or whatever it may be that you're revisiting you know when you establish those accounts as Nate said mm -hmm. um, I did have the situation where I had an account with two children named as beneficiaries and the third was left out. <laughs> Thankfully, they all got along, right? So we were able to fix it um, through the estate administration process. But unfortunately, Andrew, Nate, and myself see, you know, more often than not, families that are not getting along. And I think a lot of that has to do with grief. Yeah. So the best planning that you can do is to sit down and, and to get things in order and make sure that they actually align with your wishes and, and desires for either when you're incapacitated or when you do pass. And I always tell clients, it's not if you pass, it's when, when. you pass. Mm -hmm. So not a fun thing to think about as, as a young person, but definitely mm -hmm. can help avoid a lot of serious consequences yeah. that just result in a lot of attorney's fees, to be honest. Well, and as a young person to get in the habit of milestones, going back to your state planning to change beneficiaries or update them or look at that, like just getting into that habit of big milestones in life, including children and people who pass, just update it. And, and I think I would even encourage more of a, you know, a, a review on a certain amount of year basis mm -hmm. versus a milestone basis, because maybe you think about it at milestones but things change whether it's politics or laws or yeah. or any of those kinds of things that can really affect what you're trying to do also so we we try to touch base with our clients every three years or so to, to make sure they've taken a look at it and encourage them to go talk to their attorney yeah so much information i'm always blown away when i do these podcasts at what i learn it's just amazing and then i sit and I'm in grief the rest of the day of how much I had to learn. So, but I appreciate each of you being here on Money Better today. This is just a wealth of information. So much more conversation could come out of this, which I appreciate. Um, but thank you each for being here today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I do want to say that as we are talking about retirement investments and products, these are not FDIC insured and there's no bank guarantee and they may actually lose value. Union Bank and Trust financial literacy materials, articles, guides, blogs, podcasts, and videos are for informational purposes only and not an advertisement for product or service. The accuracy and completeness is not guaranteed and does not constitute legal or tax advice. Please consult with your own tax, legal, and financial advisors. Member FDIC.